0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law and policy podcast. I'm Stephen Mirrens. On this episode, we are joined by Sean Rehag, an associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School. Sean is also the director of the Center for Refugee Studies and the director of the Refugee Law Laboratory. If you're interested in Canadian refugee law, both institutes are definitely worth checking out. Professor Rehag recently published two papers which form the basis of our discussion today and today's episode. The first is titled Luck of the Draw Three, Using AI to Examine Decision-Making in Federal Court's Stays of Removal. The second paper is titled Claim Types in Canada's Refugee Determination System, an Empirical Snapshot. Both papers are interesting. The second is, in my opinion anyways a must read if you want to see a breakdown of refugee success rates based on claim type, judge, country of origin, and more. It actually contains very detailed breakdowns. So beyond just saying that a claim is LGBTQ, it breaks it down based on whether the claimant was lesbian, bi, gay, trans, it gets into very detailed breakdowns of refugee success rates based on say forced sterilization, objections to government, and so on and so forth. It's a very interesting paper. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I don't follow many people on Twitter, uh, but Professor Rehag is one. He can be found at S-E-A-N-R-E-H-A-A-G. Professor Rehag has been on the podcast before in episode 31 where we discussed his uh, research on extra legal factors that influence outcomes in Canadian refugee adjudication. That was the sentence that I put in the show notes for that episode, but the easy way of thinking about what that episode was, was how much does a refugee claim depend on who the individual tribunal member is? Today, we discuss Sean's use of GPT to conduct legal research artificial intelligence and decision making, differential results in federal court and immigration and refugee board decisions, and how to identify if differential outcomes are significant or actually a problem. Um, it was a very interesting episode and a pretty good follow-up to some of the previous articles, or not articles, episodes that we did on artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs> you said in the article once you have the formula i don't know if gpt the formula is the right word but once you have the code or whatever it's called that you can easily update it new data yeah like how long do you think it would take like each year to just run an update like
3: 30 seconds i mean you wouldn't (laughs) take any time to 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 you open up the file and press uh run and change the uh, change uh, some of the the variables around the year. Um, it would it takes a little while to run, uh, but you're talking you know an hour kind of thing. Like it's not a it's not a significant amount of work. the The thing that's complicated is actually going out and getting the data. the The way that I was getting the data, uh, it it's a little bit messy. Like you're going to the federal courts website. You're uh, looking at all of the every single docket um, and then you're scraping the uh, information uh, about those dockets, redoing that process, that could be time consuming because you're talking about a couple hundred thousand uh, dockets and it isn't easy to know which ones would need to be uh, re in order to have an up-to-date uh, database. So the part, uh, as, as is the case with with all data analytics and data science, the challenge is, is less in the analysis side of things and more in the kind of getting access to the uh, to the uh, the data, which is one of the topics that I engaged with a bit in the um, mm-hmm. in the in the paper.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that Canley doesn't let. And I'm probably going to get the terms wrong, but Canley doesn't let you scrape their website. Now, the question that I had was like you go through the federal court docket. Is that because it's quicker than going through all the federal court decisions themselves?
3: No. Um so you had a couple of questions there. One is about um one is about Canley. So I didn't use Canley, and the reason I didn't use Canley uh is uh, because uh Canley's terms of service prohibit bulk access. So you, you you're you're not allowed to um uh, do what, um, what my research does, which is you write a computer program that goes off and tries to grab a bunch of data on legal, uh, decision-making. You can't do that. You're allowed to access Canley data, um, one by one. If you're like a lawyer and you're wanting to read a case, but you can't access it, uh, programmatically. And and that's a problem. It's a problem because Canley is the main source that, uh, That we have that's publicly available that keeps um, kind of all Canadian case law or most recent Canadian case law in one conveniently accessible uh, format. It's always uh, more or less uh, up uh, to date. And so, if you want to do this kind of work, ideally you'd be engaging with um, Canley, but because of the terms of service, you uh, you can't. and that, that creates um, asymmetries in terms of access to bulk data, and it creates asymmetries in terms of the ability to play around with new technology on that data. And so you can think, for example, um, there are large um, uh, there are large companies that can um, uh, afford to purchase uh, bulk uh, mm-hmm. data whether they're purchasing it from um, the commercial branch of of, uh, of Kenley, uh, Alexum, or whether they're purchasing it from the um, the big commercial databases, they can do that. There's also startup uh, companies that are, are uh, accumulating this kind of data. You can think of uh, Blue Jay Legal is an example of a, uh, a law and, and tech startup that has put together uh, data. So this data kind of exists. It's in the hands of, of some commercial actors. It's also in the hands of the government. So the Department of Justice can uh, play around uh, with this data. Uh, it's not easily, though, in the hands of independent uh, kind of uh, university-based researchers like me or uh, lawyers who might, might want to play around with uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, technology in, in their own workflow. So that, that's a real uh, problem. Um, but that wasn't the reason why for this specific stays project why i used um federal court uh docket data um one of the advantages of the federal courts website is that they do allow for non-commercial reproduction so the terms of service don't prohibit uh scraping so that's that's one reason that i i I use the federal courts um data Uh, but the main reason i use the federal courts data is because um, not all stay decisions are published. In fact, prior to 2018, very few stay decisions are published. Um, And even since then, there are quite a few stay decisions that aren't really decisions. They're just kind of like orders. Um, Those aren't uh, all uh, published. And so uh, the result is that if you want to go beyond just what's in the Published decisions. If you want to study um, certain kinds of procedural decisions, or you want to study stay, uh, you want to study leave decisions, uh, for example, you have to go beyond published decisions. And one of the places where you can look is um, the online dockets, because they contain uh, information about um, each kind of step uh, along the way. And so that's why I chose for this project to use the. The federal court
2: docket. Of course, that makes sense because when we last had you on the podcast to discuss the the your paper on differential leave rates, that would all be in the docket. There's no published mm-hmm. decisions.
4: And That's and, right. and and uh, and you clarify this in your paper that that the the docket, um, you know, I, I even looked at, and I've seen the docket in terms of cases that I've run too. The docket is a um, is something much more brief than a decision itself but that the decisions won't be there on the federal court website they may be on Canley, um but might not be in both languages and in fact um, likely would not be in both languages, but that, um, that at least the, the basic facts can be scraped off of the docket if you have the savvy to be able to go in and scrape that data and then analyze it. Um, so I, I thought that was a useful element of that and to just show um, what it takes to kind of break down the information that's available on the website for those who have the skills to kind of go in and, and find it.
3: Yeah, you don't. You definitely don't get the facts of the uh, the cases in in the dockets. You definitely. all you really know is that someone has applied for judicial review. You you often know uh, what kind of judicial review. Like, is it a judicial review of a refugee decision? Is it a judicial review of a an administrative deferral uh, request? And then you know the various steps. Like, did the mm-hmm. did the respondent oppose uh, whatever request, or uh, was there a hearing, or File a motion Um, record. Was
4: it
3: replied to? Exactly. So you you have all of that. Whereas on the federal court um, website, you do also have decisions. Um, All decisions, not all decisions, most decisions that are published uh, on Canley are also published on the federal court's um, website. Uh, But one uh, somewhat uh, frustrating uh, exception is state decisions. So um, the federal court does identify. Cases that uh, state decisions that it thinks have some precedential value, it gives those state decisions a neutral citation. They're published on Canley and on the federal court website and they're fully translated. Um, But for uh, cases that are not viewed as precedential, the court uh, does not publish them themselves. They only provide them to uh, Canley and they're not given a neutral citation. The direct consequence of that, um, you know, the, you you kind of wonder, well, why are they doing this? If there's no presidential value, like, why are they giving it to Canley instead of publishing it uh, themselves? It's kind of curious. And the answer is translation yeah. costs. So uh, because it's not on the federal court website, the theory is that they don't need to be translated. And I, I'm quite troubled by that
0: mm-hmm. a logic,
3: because if it's true, if, they, if they're right that they can avoid if the court is right, that it can avoid obligations um, to translate decisions by just giving them to a third party, like Canley, then in principle, they could do that for, every, for all decisions, right? Like they could, they could simply decide, well, we're no longer going to publish any of our decisions, we're going to give them all to Canley, and if Canley wants to translate them or whatever they can, but that they that, that they don't have to. And so that, I I I think that there's a, uh, for those of us who are, are interested in, in language rights and in language rights in legal practice, um, it's it's a, bit, uh, it's a bit troubling.
4: Yeah. And I would say, oh. and I would need to look back over my own jurisprudence, if I may, uh, that I have found that when a judgment is delivered from the bench, um, I have not found those decis- decisions to be reported. And so that I think probably happens more frequently in stay motions where they're going to render their decision from the bench. And perhaps that is another kind of um, situation in which they they rarely do get recorded. Um, Because as you say, they're not considered decisions in quite the same way, but rather just orders. I'm not quite sure what the distinction is here, but that's just something that I have found. I got an order from the bench, but it never turned up as a reported decision.
3: Yeah, I've I've done some some work in the past about that question. Um about uh, uh when does uh when when does the court decide to publish something uh versus uh not publishing something. So I did a project with um, um with one of my uh one of my uh, a doctoral students, uh Pierre-André Rio, and and we looked uh we looked into the question of um so there was a there was a period uh where the federal court uh was doing uh, was deciding whether to publish its decisions um uh, using a fairly similar kind of logic that they're currently using with state decisions that is if a decision was viewed as not having presidential weight then it was not given a neutral citation and it wasn't given to canley or anyone like it just never appeared um publicly um and so the, the federal court went through a, a variety of different practices around uh, that over the last, uh, uh, over the last 10 years. Um, it, uh, some of the, uh, when, when I looked at this empirically, it was kind of interesting to see we, that some judges viewed all of their decisions as having precedential presidential value and others as uh, viewed uh, virtually none of their decisions as having presidential value and gender was a, a major predictor mm. gender of the judge was a major predictor uh, no, that of that so you surprise can, me <laughs> you can I, I don't think it was a finding that didn't surprise a lot of people but it yeah. was quite the, the difference was quite stark mm-hmm. um, and so um, uh, but regardless there's something there's something that sits with difficulty around the idea of of uh, a stare decisis and the idea that a judge issuing a decision is the one who gets to decide whether their decision mm. has precedential Value or not, like that's not norm. it's not normal. Yeah, like I wonder if that's limited
2: to uh, immigration law or in other areas. Yeah, well, I mean, in, I won in... a case in 2014 where the judgment just said that the judge was adopting paragraphs whatever 35 to 37 of the applicant's memorandum of argument as their reasons. And when it the facts came in, I thought this is going to look weird on Canley, but uh, it was never reported. And then it makes you wonder, like with judges whose names you don't see that often. Um. Whether they are just saying, like you said, that they don't believe their decisions are of precedential value, but they're actually rendering a lot more decisions than you'd otherwise think.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's lots here. There's there's questions here about the strategic use of um, of uh, 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 of being able to decide whether or not your case should be uh, published. You can imagine that if you have a very sympathetic um, party, uh, but you're a judge who has policy preferences um, you know that prioritize kind of border control. You can imagine you know giving a positive decision but not publishing it kind of mm-hmm. uh, strategically, there's there's definitely concerns um, in the United States around uh, this practice um, uh, both in terms of gender and race, uh, and whose voices uh, get uh, amplified uh, in, uh, jurisprudence. Um, so there's, there's quite a few, uh, concerns Uh, on the, on the flip side, the argument is, well, why do we need thousands of precedents? And especially what do we do about the fact that we know that jurisprudence on many key issues that you can find you know hundreds of cases that go one way and hundreds of cases that go another way like what are you supposed to do that do with that as a as a lawyer uh as as a judge and so there's uh, there has been in many jurisdictions um concerns raised about there being too much jurisprudence in the migration uh context and, and, a, and, uh-huh. a, and a desire to kind of send some signals to the bar about which of those cases are ones that really that really uh matter so you can kind of understand uh you can also understand that there have been periods where the court uh the federal court in particular uh has had resource uh issues around translation Mm -hmm. and so you know publishing fewer decisions is one of the ways of saving money um uh on that kind of budget line so there's there, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot going into this question of of when did decisions uh, when did decisions get published My sense though is that um, partly because of the large amount of jurisprudence uh, in in the migration field um, migration law is one of the areas where moving beyond standard legal research methodologies of kind of Reading one case and reading another case, and grabbing the bits that you like the best from it—that—that um, that we need to think about moving beyond that that methodology. And I think some of the tools that I use um, to try to extract uh, meaningful information with the assistance of of, of AI—I uh, think that's the—I I think that's one of the directions that the, that not not only academic research but legal practice is is probably going in.
2: Yeah. I mean if you look at that saying bad facts make bad law a judge being able to say that they don't want their decision to have precedential value would also you know alleviate that concern that those bad facts are going to create bad jurisprudence. Um going off what you just touched on in terms of the research that you do with artificial intelligence being helpful for practitioners um you also mentioned in one of your papers that The flip side is that it may be helping the department draft decisions that are just designed to kind of not block, but make judicial review more difficult. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's something we've kind of talked about a concern before is that, is artificial intelligence going to lead to better decisions or just better reasoned decisions where there wasn't actually that much consideration given to an application but the AI is able to produce really solid almost boilerplate template reasons
3: yeah I mean that's a, that's a really good question there is a big difference between AI tools that assist lawyers and automated decision making or automated decision writing I think they I think they raised different sets of of concerns, but on the automated decision making or decision writing uh, side, uh, there's there's good reason to be concerned about many components of um, the use of this technology. So one um, concern uh, is uh, automation bias. So that's really well known in the, the academic literature that if you give a decision maker a kind of recommendation from a, uh, a machine, from a from an algorithm. Um, even if you say, "Look, this is just a recommendation," and you continue to have discretion to uh, to make your your own decision, the research suggests that most decision makers are going to defer most of the time to uh, the uh, algorithm. So then, the question of who's actually making the decision is it. You know, is it the algorithm that's making the decision? Is it the the coder who put this together? Is it the kind of conglomeration of data that's going into the algorithm, or is it the actual administrative decision maker? Um, that becomes difficult to kind of figure out. It also becomes very difficult to challenge um, if you're uh, if you're you're bringing an application for judicial review because what exactly are you? reviewing are you you reviewing the algorithm and if so how how particularly given that most of the data is proprietary it's not open the algorithms the process to build them are typically subject to various kind of contracts and ip uh, limitations mostly built by commercial folks like not necessarily in the canadian context but in some other contexts where uh, this has been done so um there's there's just a transparency um uh problem there is also the question of so that that's that's a problem in decision making automated decision making automated decision writing also has a bunch of problems because it's it's not really it's no longer decision writing it's decision justification so it's you know here's the outcome and here's the here's uh here's a justification that's being offered for it but what's the connection between Mm -hmm the justification and the actual decision making process because you know depending on how it's done you, you can imagine a transparent algorithm and you say well here are my inputs and here are the various weights and like that might mean something although it's very difficult to do with machine learning because it's so complicated that might mean something but if what you're doing is you're taking an input of like a bunch of facts and then you've got an output of a i don't know a decision uh, letter and the decision letter says you know i'm not satisfied that you've met this criteria here, the decision letter doesn't actually tell you anything uh, meaningful. And so there's, there's no way to, to, um, uh, to, to, to try to get at the actual uh, reason. So this is, this is a, it's a real problem. Um, I think we are going to need, for example, to, to work with um, Uh, experts in artificial intelligence um, more and more i think there really is a need to push for some transparency uh in this area that that if the government does want to rely on uh, on um data that that it, it it has to disclose that 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 has to be part of the kind of record in litigation you can't just say here's the output without giving access to the input lots of challenges there around privacy but um, I, I think I think those are some of the areas that uh, uh, that we need to be pushing on. So there, there's reasons to be concerned. At the same time, though, uh, I think the starting point for a discussion of AI is to recognize that human decision-making in the migration field is super problematic, really flawed, biased yeah. in all sorts of ways, subjective in all sorts of ways. And the same problem that we have about reasons not being transparent are just as applicable, if not more so, in the in the human decision making context. So I've mm-hmm. I've done some some work with Hilary Evans Cameron on uh, on this, where we did a uh, we used a, an experimental research um, methodology. Um, we had uh, uh, all the one L students um, at uh, Osgood. Uh, act as simulated refugee adjudicators. So they uh, they decided uh, they looked at a, uh, at a refugee a simulated refugee file. Um, it was a sexual orientation file. The only issue at play in the uh, file was credibility and it was specifically uh, whether the claimants asserted sexual orientation uh, was uh, whether they were being truthful or not with regard to their uh, sexual orientation. Um, so this, the simulated adjudicators, they had to indicate whether they found the claimant to be credible or not. And then they had to provide um, reasons uh, for why they found the claimant to be credi- credible or not. And the, uh, the experimental value that we were playing with was, um, does what the claimant looks like um, matter? And so we divided the students into groups, three groups. One group um, just saw a text. They didn't see an image. Uh, one group saw an image of a of a claimant who presented in ways that tracked onto research about um, about uh, uh, what leads people to perceive someone as straight. Um, another uh, that whose uh, presentation tracked stereotypes about um, what leads people to uh, view someone as uh, queer, uh, and then we just looked at the the outcomes and predictably uh the, the students were more likely to believe the claimant whose physical presentation uh, matched stereotypes about uh, what uh, sexual minority bodies look like um so that was not uh surprising uh, what was quite interesting though was that was entirely non-transparent in the reasons so in the written reasons that were provided the students who didn't believe uh the claimant they looked at you know, contradictions in the evidence or um, or changes uh, in the evidence or uh, indicators that the claimant had falsified certain documents or whatever. Uh, and so if you just, if you take the reasons that they wrote seriously, it would appear that it's those kind of traditional markers of credibility that were driving the decisions. But we know because we have this experimental methodology that it was actually the image that was driving the, uh, the outcome. And so I'm quite confident that that happens in real life uh, as well. And so just because someone says, you know, here's why your refugee claim fails, here's why you're not credible, you know, that doesn't mean that that's actually why they're, uh, the person was uh, treated as not credible. So um, uh, all of that to say that when we, and, you know, my research also shows massive variations in grant rates depending on uh, who serves as the uh, decision maker at the Immigration Refugee Board, at the RPD, at the RAD, at the federal court. So um, all of that to say that human decision making is a really problematic. And what I would really like us to do, rather than uh, kind of immediately reaching for AI to replace decision makers, I think we should be using AI to interrogate the decision makers, to audit decision makers, to do what I've done and shown that outcomes in federal court state applications appear to hinge, at least in part, on which judge um, is assigned uh, to the case. If we do that kind of thing, if we use AI not to catch fraud by applicants but to identify racism by immigration officers, um. Why? Why is why would the government think that one of those things is more urgent to do than the other? It's a purely kind of political uh, decision. I think we should be pushing for uh, the use of AI in this kind of rights-enhancing uh, way. Pausing so your on objective what you said. Uh, oh,
4: sorry, your objective in in conducting these types of studies is not to to push for. Uh, a move away from human decision making, but for, uh, um, for a, a substantive look at what is driving the variance in the approval rates and um, to have there be some adjustment in the way the claims are being um, adjudicated to create kind of a more uniform rule of law standard. Is that the idea?
3: Yeah, I mean, we can take that too far. You could have a uniform standard by saying, you know, everyone from Mexico has their claim denied. <laughs> so you can, you can get to uniformity. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we, we need uniformity, but a little bit less subjectivity. I think what part, part of what I try to do in my research is to say, look, there's subjectivity in all of these forms of uh, decision-making, and that combines with really high stakes. For some mm-hmm. of these, like for state decisions, someone might be saying, you know, don't send me back because I'm going to be killed or whatever. Like these are these can be very high stakes mm-hmm. uh decisions. And so by pointing out ways in which there is subjectivity in those decision in those decisions, you know, my aim is not to attack the the judges or or mm-hmm. or the court or to discredit the the system. I have a lot of respect for everyone who engages with the, the system including the courts and, and the judges my my intention is simply to um point out uh way reasons to be concerned about outcomes and then to use that to suggest ways to uh to improve um uh, to improve decision making and so that could mean you know greater access to oversight uh why is it that in the immigration setting it's like one of the only legal settings where there are really tight limits on on uh, uh Access even to judicial review, like what the leave requirements. Leave
4: is, process, yeah. For example,
3: or what's with letting the federal court judge, who decides a case, decide whether you can appeal? Like that's that's a bit,
4: that's mm-hmm. a bit absurd. The certification a, of the a, question. As, that's right, as a as mm-hmm. a process.
3: So, um, so I th- so part of what I try to do in 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 my research is is make those, um, is provide kind of an empirical basis for we're thinking about that. I also want to, you know, I've had lots of conversations with immigration revenue board members and with judges about like, okay, so you've, you've, you've shown us a problem. What, what, what can I do about it as a decision maker? And I know that there are judges and um, immigration and refugee board members who have looked at the data and they said, Oh, I really had no idea that I was an outlier on, mm-hmm. um, uh, on this. And I'm, I'm going to be, reflective and and thoughtful about that um so so that's another way that i think this this uh kind of uh of uh, of research uh can be uh can be uh, productive uh, mm-hmm. and uh um yeah and and just helpful to get us to rethink our processes mm-hmm. yeah that actually yeah. touches yeah.
2: on a point that i was going to re- um ask which is um you know, you're tracking these stats. Did the federal court, on their own, track these type of stats, or, as you kind of just alluded to, are the judges kind of seeing it for the first time? And everything was so siloed that judges may not have known what the norm was for leave granting or stay granting. Um,
3: I I don't know the answer to. I don't think. I mean, I just don't know the answer. You'd you'd have to ask yeah. the the court about whether they're. Uh, whether they're doing that I do know I have spoken to some individual judges who have told me that that, that they have tried to track some of their own um, uh, some of their own uh, decisions um, so but I but I, I think that's a good question as an institution you know there there are really important strong norms about judicial independence and we need to you know the last thing that we want is to just get rid of uh, judicial independence so we, we do need to be careful about this, but um, most uh, institutions that make high stakes decisions, they think very carefully about how they design decision making to reduce the kinds of errors that are most problematic. And so my um, and my doctoral student, Jonathan uh, Can has a, a helpful way of thinking about this, which is, what, what might we learn from the airline industry um, in terms of the design of high stakes decision-making in, um, in uh, legal settings? So, you know, when a plane takes off, there's, uh, uh, there's this is a, a high stakes setting, right? you've got a whole bunch of people whose lives are in the hands of the mechanics and the, uh, the air traffic controllers and, and the pilots. Um, and sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes things go horribly wrong. And so, what does the industry do? The industry creates a whole series of processes that are designed to try to prevent the worst possible outcomes. They create all these checklists. They have um, redundancies that are built in. So they they they, okay. they have all of these measures. And there's 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 whole kind of scholarly and industrial disciplines that have been built up around um trying to create um uh, good decision making in these kinds of high-stakes settings and i, I think the uh, i think that the legal system could uh, could learn something from uh, from that so why is it that the decision makers get very little feedback on um what actually happens um you know someone isn't recognized as a refugee is sent back and, you know, you, the decision maker never knows what, uh, what happens to them. Um, the immigration and refugee board, you know, there are uh, thousands of decisions that are judicially reviewed. They don't really have a good process for integrating that feedback into their own, um, decision-making processes. It's kind of ad hoc that, Oh, a lawyer works for the board will come up with some training based on a particular pattern that jumps out of them. but there isn't like a systematic um, uh, a way of, of of approaching judicial feedback. I think uh, I think we should be moving in, in, in that uh, direction and I think what the, the logic should be we know this is a high stakes form of decision making. What can we do to avoid? Uh, the worst possible um uh the worst possible uh, errors and I would say the worst possible errors are you know sending someone to a place where they're going to be persecuted tortured or uh or or killed. Or, or killed.
4: Mm-hmm. and uh, as you said in the paper, the standard to which an applicant is held in raising a stay application is uh, that they need to evidence that they would face irreparable harm, and when they're doing that, especially as a as a last uh, effort, the because many of these applications are brought on an emergency basis, there's a huge outlay of resources, and I think part of what you're trying to shed light on through this paper is um, the imbalance of access to some of the information that, um, that has existed in the past and just trying to, um, to level that field um, by use of these um, AI tools so that at least the applicants have the same degree of access to the information that's available um, as to the outcome of, of decisions um, at the federal court. Um, but I think this idea about um, what comes from a study like this, I'm just interested in anything that you can offer about the reception that your paper has had in the, in the legal field, um, at the court, um, whether, you know, there's been any receptivity to the kind of learnings that, that it has brought forward um, in terms of, you know, what these disparities show um what what the court might do with this information, um, whether it's been approached with a kind of hostility about what you're trying to accomplish by showing the the, the variances um, I don't know um, what you're able to to share about um, you know what's happened since it's been published
3: yeah um, my my experience with the court has been that uh, both individual judges and the court institutionally is is interested in thinking about these. Um, in thinking about these questions, uh, when I released one of my earlier uh, studies on uh, leave grant rates, I was invited to give a talk to a group of uh, judges at the court, and then the court actually included responding to the research on disparities in leave grant rates. In they included it in one of their strategic uh, plans, and so the, the and my understanding is that they the court uh, held uh, a meeting among judges to talk about, you know, when is it appropriate or not to uh, grant leave with the intent of trying to um, bring the rates a little bit more into a a kind of convergence. Um, So the the court uh, has in the past been um, interested in engaging uh, for the current, uh, uh, for the current uh, study. As I said, I've had engagement with individual judges. I also have a meeting with uh, um, uh, with uh, the chief justice uh, to uh, to discuss it, uh, so I think there's uh, receptiveness. I, I I do think that there's some um, understandable and, and probably legitimate question about: is this an issue just for the the federal court, or is it simply a feature of all judicial um, decision making? And I I have been. I'm trying uh, recently to, to look into that question. I've been looking at, uh, uh, at tax court uh, cases as, as a kind of comparator to see um, is this phenomenon of the luck of the draw present there uh, using similar kind of methodologies. And so far, it seems to suggest that, yes, uh, uh, there's a similar problem related to the luck of the draw in that setting and probably in, in many others if you were to do this kind of research on I don't know criminal law or landlord-tenant. Like I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm, I'm sure there's a similar um, uh, phenomenon.
4: I imagine um, that the com- criminal law comparison is a bit more apt, considering the the stakes. I mean, not to say that there aren't there are sometimes high stakes in the tax sector, but it's not the same life, liberty, security of the person kind of interests that uh, that come to play.
3: For for sure, although criminal law is, is um, has some complexity uh, because of the uh, flexibility provided by sentencing, as well as um, far more extensive negotiations, kind of pre litigation, and so there's there 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 are some challenges in terms of um, uh, in terms of of just researching something uh, like that but i that 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 argument that you made there about um the stakes is you know, is typically my response to the question exactly. of, of so. uh well is this a federal court problem or is this a problem more generally on one level it doesn't really matter um uh, even if it's a problem more generally we're talking about high stakes decisions and in my view, this level of subjectivity is is um, is unacceptable in that Great. context and requires some some um, some discussion and and some uh, and some action, even if it's merely reflective of uh, subjectivity and decision making more generally.
4: Yeah, that's right.
2: I saw like as any, and I don't know how out of date this is, but I saw that in 2019, France banned uh the use of artificial intelligence to try to predict judicial behavior i assume there's been no grumbling about that here as have there been any like as far as you know is there talk of something similar here or has anyone expressed the same i think the concern there was forum shopping i don't their judicial systems very different from ours but
3: yeah um, well, form shopping, I mean, th- that kind of concern is, is, I think, less of an issue in this context. Although, not entirely. Um, some of, the, some of the, the research that I've done has...
4: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
3: Success rates, both at leave and on stays, um, in some French language proceedings, uh, mm. it's entirely unclear whether we're whether that's attributable to judges or to, I don't know, maybe legal aid uh, policies in in Quebec. Like, there's very hard to to know what the the cause is, but you can imagine making some kind of. Um, calculation related to foreign shopping there. But generally speaking, foreign shopping is is uh, less of a concern here. And I actually don't think that's the real reason why uh, France uh, took the position um, that they did. I think the concern is around the exposure of um, the role of individual decision makers in a process that is conceived of uh, as... Um, uh, as a, uh, a process that uh, should reflect the law and the facts, not the uh, the individual decision maker. And I think that there are some cultural mm-hmm. um, and ideological reasons why it is um, more concerning uh, to uh, uh, to folks in Quebec uh, legal uh, sorry in in, in France uh, than it is. Um, here I think we're much more, used to seeing this kind of research um, uh, mostly done in the United States but it's kind of filtered into our our, our, our culture here. Um, I, I'm not aware of, of attempts to try to uh, restrict this kind of research in Canada, but there have been um, interesting discussions in Australia uh, on this um, uh, on this uh, uh, topic and there, there are concerns for example about, um about uh ways that the that information can be um uh, can be misrepresented um uh ways that uh, the system of justice could be brought into disrepute by overly simplistic uh analysis um in general the response there has not been to kind of outlaw, criminalize
2: yeah.
3: uh, research has been, a, it's been, you know, to think about how should courts engage um, with uh, this uh, research, which is something that I think we should do here as well. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think courts should welcome, um, uh, should view this as kind of a, a, a way of increasing transparency and, and a potential way to improve their own decision-making practices. And I think they should welcome um, this kind of uh, of research, and I think that we should be facilitating it in in uh, uh, in in other uh, in other contexts uh, as well. So I don't think I don't think we're at risk of kind of going down the yeah. the, uh, the French
2: route. We've talked a bit about IRB or IRCC, and maybe to a lesser extent the IRB using. Well, actually, no. I think we've only talked about IRCC using artificial intelligence to help write decisions. To what extent? do you think ai could play a role in helping judges write decisions or should it be playing a role for judges as well as visa officers
3: yeah i think it it depends what you mean by playing a role like there's there's a big difference so for example when you're if you're using a um uh gmail or or other similar uh systems um or you're texting or whatever there's kind of predictive Yeah. Uh, Predictive, uh, you know, what's the next word, and you can just pick the next word. That kind of thing is going to happen quickly um, uh, using technology similar to ChatGPT, uh, integrated into uh, word processors. And rather than it just being one word, it's going to be more. It's going to be a sentence. It's going to be a paragraph. Um, And... I've watched this um, uh, for I've been on sabbatical for the last uh, uh, this year and um, I spent the year my kind of main objective for the year was to improve my coding skills and so I've been coding um, a lot and uh, there is an equivalent kind of tool the little predict the next word um, uh, thing uh, uh, which predicts the next line of code or the next chunk of code it's also uh, put together by uh, OpenAI that produced ChatGPT. It's called Codex. Um, uh, uh, it's integrated into some um, uh, frequently used coding uh, software, and it's really remarkable. Like you're 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 writing away your code. You know, I don't know what the code is. Go to the federal court website and grab these decisions or whatever, and it just it just knows it, it, it puts in like a whole, a whole equivalent of a paragraph and it gets it right. It probably gets it better than I, uh, I would have been able to do it myself. Uh, sometimes it gets it wrong. So you need to, uh, you need to think carefully about it, but it's, it's really impressive that, that level, we're not very far off from that in, um, uh, in word processing, uh, software. And I guarantee you that, that, that judges and, and decision makers are going to use this in the same way that we all currently use kind of spell checkers and we all know how to do canly searches like so uh so i think that's gonna happen as to whether we have more sophisticated um systems uh that uh, kind of do the equivalent of what lawyers do all the time where you have a an old file that you use as a template for you know you've you've done a a stay application uh you go, you grab that file, you plug in the new inf- that kind of thing is also likely to um it's it's something that you could you could do fairly easily through uh, AI systems and and I suspect that that will eventually happen uh, with decision decision writing as well. The thing that everyone's more scared of than that though is like a fully automated system where instead of Instead of actually sitting down and writing a decision, it's more of a checkbox kind of thing. Like, is there a credibility issue? Yes, no. Uh-huh. Is that? Um, I think that people who have tried to make those like there's there's persistent rumors that there that some IRB member wrote one of these things um, uh-huh. uh, fifteen uh, years ago. Um, I would love to see it. I've never. I don't know if that's true. Um, but um, if you try to, to do that, you quickly realize that the amount of work involved, uh, it becomes very difficult unless you have, unless the decision is, is very, very simple. So for some IRCC decisions, like there's really only five possible reasons why you're denying, uh, uh, uh a student visa, um, you know, and they're fairly, so, and the letters that are produced are, basically meaningless they're 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 just really citing Mm -hmm. a particular legislative provision so we're already there
4: with those yeah (laughs) yeah
3: so so that's that's easier to do um it's easier to do where the decision making is less transparent when you're when you're looking at you know why do i believe you're that that you were in fact uh uh, a survivor of intimate partner violence like that that's going to be very difficult to do as a as a kind of checkbox uh, exercise um uh so i i would be surprised if we uh if we uh do uh, get there but there are people who are trying there are people mm-hmm. who are trying to come up with
2: I think the department is uh it. trying um i don't know if you followed the whole Chinook and the yeah. use of uh, advanced analytics and decision making but it seems like uh IRCC is at least trying to move towards this i've often wondered like you know like if you if a decision maker has a credibility concern that they have to send a procedural fairness letter like i wonder if we'll reach the point where a decision maker will be typing oh i don't view it as credible and artificial intelligence will just change it to i don't believe there's sufficient evidence and like we're for that seem i think that's the direction where it's gonna like head
3: yeah i i think it's i think it's uh i think there's a risk um Yeah, but I mean, is that fundamentally different than an immigration refugee board decision maker sending a draft decision for to internal counsel for uh, for review? Who does the exact same thing of being like, yeah, I mean, maybe uh... maybe reword it so that you're not saying um, that you're just saying I'm not satisfied instead of saying uh, you're not credible. You know, like it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I I think I think there's reasons to be. I think there's reasons to be to be worried, but I think it's a, I think it's a bigger question than just the, the the technology. I often have this this question when we think back, you know, the the, the big uh, the the Baker case, the uh, the question about a reasonable apprehension of bias by uh, an immigration officer, a decision maker who said, you know, wrote right into the record that the reason that. They were denying um, uh, an immigration application was because the uh, the decision maker had basically too many children and was taking advantage mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. of uh, of welfare and and just displaying all kinds of of uh, of racist and xenophobic uh, stereotypes. But there's an interesting question here about was the decision maker in that case actually doing a good job because mm-hmm. they were actually articulating their their honest reasons mm-hmm. for the decision and on one level that's exactly what you want both
4: mm-hmm.
3: both because it facilitates because it facilitates uh, uh that's oversight.
4: transparency
3: right it's, it's it's transparency and would you rather have that same decision maker say you have not provided sufficient evidence to satisfy mm-hmm. me that you're going to x right so um so I think this is th- these are these are are things that we need to be concerned about. But they're on one level they're they're basic administrative law um, questions yeah. uh, rather than necessarily just a matter of of technology.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the Not questions okay. that I've had around AI, and you know, now with uh, you might. Uh, have an answer to this, and I've discussed it with Deanna before, is, is it possible, like, so let's suppose that the AI is going through all past decisions, and it notices that visa officers traditionally have had a lower approval rating for temporary residents for people from Africa. Would the AI, is it possible that the AI would make the connection to say, okay, the photos in those applications are primarily from, you know, Black people from Africa, and all of a sudden to start making the leap that black people based on photographs should be refused based on traditionally people with those that skin color and photographs because it was from Africa um, had a higher refusal rate. Would the AR start would the AI be able to start going down paths that obviously we wouldn't want? Um, and would would you be able to detect that it was starting to make Inferences like this. It's
3: well, certainly the case that if you have biased data, which I, which I'm sure we we do, like there is no question that uh, uh, that uh, credibility assessments are going to be affected by race. There's no question that you know
4: refusal rates from certain regions are higher than refusal rates from hmm. others. Yeah, that's
3: right. that's that's right. Young Muslim men are gonna. Mm-hmm that there's going to be certain patterns with those that are different. Right. So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, for sure, that's a, a concern, but probably also equally a concern for human decision-making. Like the reason the data is biased is because mm-hmm. of biased human uh, decision-makers. And on one level, it, it might actually be easier to detect and to stop,
2: so would that show yeah. up like in code, or just you'd notice the pattern in no, no. results? So part part of what's
3: complicated about using uh, about using uh, machine learning is that there is no there is no code like the 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 I mean there's code, but there there is no instructions in the code about how to um, to to make particular inferences. It's what the what the system is doing is it's um, is it's inferring. Um, uh, it's it's detecting patterns and then replicating those patterns. And so to the extent that the patterns are, you know, racist or or, um, or problematic in various other uh, ways, it is going to, the system is going to,, um, is going to reflect that. But what you can't do is you can, it's it's easier to audit AI decision making than it is to audit human. Decision making because mm-hmm. you can run the thing like thousands of uh, of times, and you can change the the data that you're that you're feeding in, and so you can you can do things like you can try to find ways of masking um, race in the uh, training data and in the data that you provide to the um, uh, to the AI, or you can uh, you can um, uh, you can try to uh, introduce synthetic data so rather than using only actual data you can um, you can modify the data so you can create kind of composite data or, or you can reduce the amount of data like you could say well we're only going to put in uh, into this system a certain number of people from Africa who have been denied their application on this basis where we're always going to have the same number of people who are granted and who are denied within particular demographics. Like there's, there's lots of ways that you can play around you with it.
4: skew the information essentially to remove this, this yeah, sort of so you, systemic so you bias. Either, you can
3: either try to mask it or, and there's, there's, there, there there's lots of kind of new technologies around transparent uh, AI that try to address some of these, uh, some of these concerns. So if if all that happens is someone goes off and is like oh cool gpt3 can uh can write me a decision um and i'm going to feed in all of the refugee decisions that are available on i don't know on Canly, i i scrape all the decisions in violation of canley's terms of service i put them into uh, uh into gpt3 and i ask i then say okay here's a new factual scenario uh, write me a decision. It's going to write me a negative credibility decision because of the biased data set. So yes, we the people who are designing these things need to understand all that, but I also think as I said before that there are opportunities here to use AI to um, do audits on automated decision making and on human uh, decision making to to make visible some of these uh, some of these
4: biases. I mean, as, as you said from the outset, um, it's not that these biases don't exist. I mean, right now they're just called local knowledge when you're talking about (laughs) the, uh, you know, the visa officer who says, well, I have a suspicion that these documents are fraudulent or that this marriage is, uh, is not genuine. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, refer to this uh, amorphous idea of local knowledge, um, customary knowledge or something like that. So, um, and that's not a a data set that you can, you can tinker with when it's, uh, when it's a human.
3: It's also just very difficult to be like, okay, um, to this decision maker, I'm going to mask the person's race
4: Mm -hmm. and I'm going
3: to have you do a thousand decisions and see whether you come up with the same, like there's just there's there's limitations that are mm-hmm. easier to overcome, uh, in or the, also
4: what is specifically that local knowledge too. I mean, yep. you can do that in cross examination, but you know, in terms of the individual,
3: you can do it in cross examination. But then it's it's. I think that gets back to the the study that I did on um, uh, on uh, the impact of the images uh, on outcomes in assessing the credibility of asserted sexual orientation one of the questions there and we didn't look into this but one of the questions there is is we know that the image had an impact but did the decision maker know that the image Mm
4: -hmm. had an
3: impact because it could simply be something that they like it's possible that they looked at the person was like you don't look weird to me but i know i shouldn't say that Um,
4: yeah for sure uh,
3: or it could simply be they had no idea and and like we're all subject to these kinds of of biases that we uh, that we may not be aware of, and so cross examination, uh, if the person is being truthful, can it, can get you at that first scenario, but it's not going to help you with the the, the second.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, your studies always raise very fascinating um, considerations with respect to rule of law and you know fallibility and the decision making process. I'm always super fascinated with the 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 questions around credibility assessments um and um i'm just interested if you have other studies that you're kind of looking for looking toward uh in the in the months and years to come uh, what's on the horizon for you in terms of what you're what you're working on now
3: yeah well i think hillary evans cameron is the most exciting kind of thinker uh, in canada at the moment on on uh, credibility issues, so if you haven't had her uh, on your uh, podcast, you should.
2: Cause we did uh, several uh, years great. ago on uh, risk saliency and refugee uh, decision making. Mm. Yeah, so she and I think you know, she had uh, like a website that's my name is Gary or right, something. Yeah, yeah. Meet like, Gary. Yeah, yeah, meet Gary. Meet Gary. <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah.
3: Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, her work is really uh, is really interesting in this area, and we're doing some work together. Um, where we're using experimental uh, methodologies uh, again um, and looking at um, markers of um, non-credible uh, testimony. Uh, and so we've given the uh, simulated adjudicators a video of, um, a, a, of a claimant is doing all the things that the research says leads people to believe that they're not credible. So gaze aversion and, and fidgeting and,
4: hmm.
3: um, uh, lengthy, uh, pauses, uh, uh, emotional kind of affect that doesn't match the thing being, uh, said. So all of these things that, um, are often understood to be indicators of, uh, of, uh, uh of lying basically right. uh, also uh not coincidentally uh are clear clearly connected with trauma uh, just one yeah, of the real sure. problems of credibility uh, assessment mm-hmm. um but uh so we're showing the students these uh, these videos um and then we're also giving them some uh instructions um, guidelines about uh what they should or should not do in uh, making credibility assessments and what the research is looking at is um, do, the, do the guidelines help? Does it help to tell someone uh, don't rely on gaze aversion, don't rely on um, uh, on fidgeting or whatever that these are not in fact markers of uh, someone not telling the truth that they could be markers of, of trauma? Um, does that help or does that uh, do the equivalent of uh, telling uh, the immigration officer, in Baker, uh, not to uh, refer to
2: stereotypes. In other words, uh, does mm-hmm. it just lead yeah. to, uh, to less that's transparent? That's like that comment yeah. where the jury yeah. will disregard the last remark. Exactly. The jury goes yeah, on, exactly. definitely going to remember that last remark now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, that, I mean,
4: so that's what but, we're looking
3: into is, is what what can we do to improve
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, to improve decision making?
4: I, I had a lengthy discussion uh, at a conference uh, last month or so with the um, assistant deputy chair of the of the IRB here in Western Region about efforts that they had made to do trauma informed training with the members of the RPD here in Western Region, and I have been pleasantly surprised in recent months with the manner in which. Uh, members of the board have been handling highly traumatized claimants at the board here and seeing a real uptake in like, you know, when I've said to board members, this is not something that my client is going to be reasonably able to discuss, (laughs) that there was really like a shift in what I'm seeing about members being like, okay, no, I I totally get that. And not using that as a negative credibility assessment. And this has been particularly with um, women who have been subject to sexual trauma and there had been, and so this woman, uh, the the assistant deputy chair was very, very, uh, you know, she was very engaged about like the challenge of trying to, Um, overcome this obstacle that you're talking about, not having it um, become something that you're just not mentioning in your decision, but actually recognizing that those Things that were classically tagged to negative credibility findings actually are highly symptomatic of post-traumatic stress. And so um, just the challenge of that. But I felt like it was really being taken up as a, as a learning and an engagement process that like and talking about sort of the, the neuroscience behind trauma and some of that. And so um, what she said is that when this learning occurred, when this training happened, that many of the members were like, wow, I really just didn't see this piece. And they were talking about neuroplasticity and how like, you know, what actually happens to the brain function after trauma. And so this is the sort of thing that I always get. This is one thing that gets me quite excited about the idea of academic learning and how that interplays with adjudication, where adjudicators, decision makers can really start to understand how um this new information that's coming into play about about how people are impacted in situations of high stress and trauma that that this is um you know that there there are concrete things to look out for again i know it's still fallible but um this is the hope
3: yeah i mean it's great to hear uh, that that uh, that the experience there has been uh positive i mean i've had um i mean i my I've done a lot of work on sexual orientation-based um, uh, claims, and it's it's really dramatic when you see the improvement in how the Immigration and Refugee Board has handled uh, those claims. From when I started looking at this in you know 2005 mm-hmm. to to now, there are still lots of problems, but of um, but they've made real strides in terms of um, through training in terms of improving decision making, and I think a lot of that training has been. Uh, interdisciplinary uh, in nature. So I think there's lots of opportunities to engage with uh, uh, researchers from various disciplines. I also think that law schools do a, a really terrible job uh, on uh, this to the disservice of uh, not only people who um, uh, end up as uh, individuals who appear before administrative decision makers who went to law school, but also to to, uh, to lawyers. I, I I think that we we, we spend so much time teaching about appellate level mm-hmm. reasoning um, and kind of big doctrinal questions, which are important. And as a lawyer, you need to be able to engage uh, with those. But the bulk of what lawyers spend their time doing uh, is is thinking about the facts and, and reasoning with mm-hmm. facts and trying to be persuasive about the evidence that they've uh, that they've, uh, put together. And it's, it's remarkable that cool. you can go through, uh, law school, uh, and never actually learn <laughs> about, uh, things like, uh, you know, what does, what does truth telling look like? And, sure. and what's the relationship between, between that and, and trauma or between that and cross-cultural communication. And it's, it's really something that, that, that I hope, uh, I've been trying to push, um, uh, in my own uh, teaching uh, to, to, to not start with, okay, these are the facts and now let's talk about the law, but that the process of creating the facts is part of the law. And we we need to take it seriously. Uh,
4: The the other thing I would add to that is um, I think the the number one greatest challenge in my practice has been trying to assist a client to communicate their stories to me and then trying to help them communicate that stories to a tribunal or a court. And the challenges that come with that, like that has been a lifetime of work, you know, and trying to like, uh, that's a skill that I've had to develop. And I think that every practitioner who came through law school at the same time that I did has had to develop on their own in real time based on like, you know, trial and error. Um, How do you, especially when you're dealing with a highly traumatized clientele, how do you get somebody to trust you, to talk to you, to work through those things? And, um, and, you know, it, it's very challenging and then how to help them address those in an adversarial system um, when they're going to be accused of falsity and um, lack of credibility and all of that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's been it's you know uh, I understand that our system is set up in an adversarial way, but um, you know, having to figure out how to help your client navigate that journey has been has been a super big challenge.
3: And how to do that without without feeling like you're the one that's hurting them? Yeah. And yeah, no, it's it's very difficult. It's when yeah. I spent several years as the academic director at Parkdale Community Legal Services, and, mm. um, so uh, a legal clinic connected with Osgood and. And that was, that was one of the things that we spent the most time, um, uh, learning about it together, but also just struggling, uh, struggling with as if you're someone who wants to, who, who, who's become a lawyer because you want to work with marginalized populations and you want to, uh, help uh, them empower themselves. And you believe in kind of community, uh, lawyering uh, principles and yet, part of what you're doing is helping them engage with a process that is traumatizing. How do (laughs) you, how do you, how do you do that ethically, morally? Like it's honestly, and the burnout
4: rate is just, it's, I mean, there are not very many people who have managed, like who continue in this area of practice throughout their entire career. I mean, one of the, the upsides of it from in the Vancouver area is that many of those not-for-profit or refugee practitioners have now become members of the board. So (laughs) that's the, uh, that's the upshot here is that we now are appearing in front of people who actually understand this side of the practice. But Um, But, you know, every year we're seeing some of the people that are entering my year of practice who are just like they're just done because it's 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 quite punishing, you know, and to watch your client be put through these types of hearings facing off against a minister's intervention. um, It's quite punishing. Um, And I think that. Yeah,
3: it's very difficult. I think it's difficult for everyone who's involved in the system. I think it's difficult for the uh, the, the decision makers. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think it's difficult for, uh, for, for the judges. I, I, I think it, I I, I think it's a hard area of practice. Well, I've been thinking about this of like, how do I teach, how do I, how do I teach my students this stuff in a way that's, that's, um, ethical and, and sensitive to people's lived, uh, experiences. There's been a lot of debate in the academy around how do we think about kind of trigger warnings and Mm -hmm. how do we prepare students? And it's one of the things that I've struggled with. Uh, I haven't struggled with it in uh, other classes. I teach administrative law and it's very easy to be like, okay, we're about to read this case that's kind of difficult in the following ways and here's how we're going to try to manage that. But when I teach refugee law, it's like every single case. It's it's all about trauma. It's all about violence. It's all about... And so, what does it mean to um, uh, to to help people navigate uh, that? I think we often just, you know, it's just the nature of the of what of what we're doing. But that doesn't feel like a satisfying. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a satisfying it really answer. Doesn't. It feels like we're just kind of not giving students the the, the tools that they're going to need if they're yeah. going to yeah. going to practice in this area.
2: I think uh, just I've. One last question in the interest of time, of course, Deanna, if you have other Mm -hmm. questions. When you see like differential results, how do you like decide or think about whether there's a problem with the data or not the problem with the data, but like it's a problem that there are the differential results or you try to dig down as to why. So I'm looking at the uh, in in your paper, the difference in um, refugee claims, success rate, recognition rate, Based on sexual orientation type and it has gay 79%, bisexual 68%, lesbian 84, transgender 97, varied other 73. Like when you look at those numbers, do you think, okay, like why would lesbian be higher than gay? Does that suggest that there's, I don't even know what, like the, a problem with the decision making or? Is there a reason why the underlying facts support that? Like where do you kind of take your analysis from once you see differential results?
3: Yeah. And we get the same question around differences in grant rates by judges. Like if it's a five yeah. percent difference, does it matter? Is it 20%? Is it for like where where is the point at which it matters? Because if you're an individual and you you don't get refugee protection because uh your your judge was three percent less likely to be generous it doesn't really matter whether it's three percent or fifty percent like you're still yeah understandably uh, feel that, that that there's been an, an injustice and the short answer is there isn't really there isn't really an answer to this um uh, I think we look at the uh, I think we look at the stakes and we say um and we say uh when we see large differences it it's a problem and I think we can say that without Saying large is ten percent, large is thirty percent. Like I don't, I, it would it would be arbitrary uh, anyway. But when I look at uh, the specific example of um, of sexual orientation based claims and uh, the ways that different subsets of sexual minorities uh, succeed at different rates, um, it becomes even more complicated because there the the issue is. Uh, is okay I've, I, I've identified that there's a difference but what's the cause because mm-hmm. one possible read of what's going on with lesbian claimants for example is that lesbian claimants are facing persecution not only on the basis of sexual orientation but also on the basis of of mm-hmm. of gender and that that intersects in ways that are uh, amplifying um the harms that they uh, that they face and that that accounts for it but there's also a read that would be uh, well you know straight men find uh gay men more threatening mm-hmm. um and therefore uh, are more sympathetic to queer women than to uh queer uh, men and so i think the answer is that that these patterns are interesting but that we need to know uh we need to know more than just that there's a difference and we need to 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 look into uh why so i have looked into why um, in the context of bi claimants, an area of interest of, uh, of um, mine. Uh, so my concern is not that, you know, in this particular um, uh, study that there's a 60-whatever percent chance if you're bi versus 70-whatever percent chance if you're a gay man. My concern is that that pattern has been consistent since 2005 and that if you then look at some of the rationales that have been given in the past judges were, were sometimes quite blunt and basically said, bisexuality is not a thing. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more which is a broader
4: than, kind of social perspective that is not confined. Or, yeah. Or
3: measure of, of bisexuality is, is, a, uh, is a well-known problem. So, um, uh, more recent cases don't do that, but they are more likely to find, um, by claimants, uh, not to be credible, and I think the logic is, well, isn't this a convenient way to explain away uh, um, a different sex, relationship, or children? Or, um, uh, and you do see that in some of the uh, some of the cases, and so then that leads you to to like, okay, well, if that is what's going on, what can we do? Um, ranging from actually getting people to think about it for a second you know if you were going to make a fraudulent claim and you knew that bi claims are less likely to be successful and you knew that as that you can make a claim as a gay man or a lesbian with evidence of um different sex um uh, sexual uh histories why why would you pick the yeah. one that's less successful you can have those kinds of conversations. Um, you can have conversations about, well, you know, actually there is a bias against by folks and, and you need to bring that to the attention of the decision makers. And here's some scholarly research uh, uh, about that. So uh, from my perspective, the stats are, are a starting point. Uh, they're a kind of audit, uh, but they do require other methodologies in order to really dig into their, their, their causes.
4: these these conversations always leave us a lot to ponder um yeah they're they're always uh, elicit a lot of uh interesting thoughts about about some of the ambiguities in the system and uh many of them are things that we all experience on a day-to-day basis sort of anecdotally and uh you know, um, we often do um, amongst ourselves as practitioners communicate with others who have made appearances before certain judges to kind of get a sense of what we should anticipate. And we all know that we read the decisions of the various judges before we make our appearances. So not none of this really comes as a shock to a practicing litigator. At the same time, when we read the results, it does feel pretty stark. Um, and I do hope that these uh, these are taken as as uh, opportunities for the whole practice area to kind of consider um, what does this mean for not just um, fairness in the, in the federal court process, but also just access to justice more generally. And I think that that's always kind of the mandate that you have when you go into some of these academic studies is looking at access to justice and fairness in the in the process and so uh you know i just want to thank you for for all of your good work and always raising these super interesting questions and having yeah. a uh you know a, a very innovative uh, approach to it because i do think that this is going to open up other studies of its type um and continue to help level the playing field between um Applicants and and respondents counsel so that uh, that people can continue to 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 use these types of tools to 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 address claims like this. Yeah.
2: Would you tell lawyers learn to code? <laughs>
3: uh, I I think uh, not being afraid to code is yeah. um, uh, is worthwhile. I actually think the skill set that leads you to be a good lawyer, which is kind of uh, being able to look at um, uh, at Uh, complex norms and break them down into components and, and uh, try to work through kind of logics and decision trees. That's something that, uh, that um, a lot of lawyers are, are very good at. And that's the same kind of exercise that, Mm -hmm. um, that one would do with code. Uh, But I think that, um, while I would encourage um, lawyers and especially law students uh, to learn uh, to, uh, to code. Um, I think what's more important is, is, um, being willing to engage with, the uh, uh, the underlying technologies and, um, as chat GPT, for example, shows, we're now at the point where you can engage with machine learning without necessarily, um, getting into the kind of nitty gritty of, of coding. Uh, I think lawyers are, are, uh That just like you know, learning how to search canly is a key skill. Learning how to engage with these systems, learning how to interrogate automated automated uh, automated decision making systems. I think these are all things that lawyers, uh, whether they like it or not, uh, whether they learn to code uh, or not, uh, are going to have to deal with.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks uh, Thanks for coming on. I hope you enjoy the rest of your sabbatical.
3: Well, thank you very much, and thanks for, the, uh, yeah. thanks for the conversation.
1: Yeah, anytime. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.